Hey everybody, glad you're here tonight. Congratulations. I am wondering how many have actually made it to all four. I don't know whether that's possible to find out, but I'm if, if it's true, you get some kind of badge or something. But uh, well done, I made it to all four, so I should get a badge, I think. But uh, it's really great to have you here tonight. Here's the, here's the big thing that we're gonna be doing tonight which is much different than the previous weeks, is we're going to be looking at leadership. When we think about what uh, parenting is or what discipleship is, it's a particular kind of relationship that has uh, leadership in it. And so what we've been doing in the past weeks is more looking at um, kind of relationships of equality or just working through relational dynamics and how we get along. We're going to kind of be injecting something new tonight with this idea of hierarchy, that there's actually going to be somebody who we are trying to influence and lead toward Jesus. And so that's why uh, this applies not just to parents. Hopefully it'll apply a lot to parents, but we're really widening it out to say if you long to give influence in someone else's life, then you're in the right place tonight. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into the material. You've already heard that if you look in the chat, you'll be able to download the notes. That'll be helpful for you because we're going to refer to those all the way through. But let me pray as we begin. Father, I thank you so much for each person who is on this call. It means that they're interested in somehow uh, helping other people uh, find you, know you, experience healthy relationships, and God, would you bless them for their desire to do that? Uh, I think it's just remarkable. And so I ask that your spirit would be here, that you would speak to us, that you would enlighten us, inspire us, uh, even convict us, but that uh, because of our time here tonight, we would all look more like you and be able to love others better. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as we've already said, we're titling this not just parenting, but parenting and discipleship. And so that made it hard to write the notes because I'm kind of going back and forth between parents and, and mentors. But I, I hope that it's going to be clear as we, uh, as we work through the material. I wanted to begin by asking the question, what is authority? Uh, you know, we've often said at our church that in our society, authority seems to be a four-letter word. And... Uh, if you have authority, you, you never draw any attention to it, and I think that's actually a pretty good idea. Maybe you try to downplay it. Um, if, uh, uh, if someone else has authority, then you want them to downplay it. But authority really is something in our society that isn't valued. Nobody aspires to have it, or at least not publicly. Maybe in our hearts we do. But if we understand what authority is, it's a very different thing than how it gets presented in the world. It seems as though authority means that I get to do what I want, or I get to influence other people toward my agenda. I think a, a helpful definition of authority is in your notes, and it's simply this, delegated service. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8, it talks about uh, Paul being given authority to build up the Corinthians and not tear them down. And so what we see there is two things. The first part of authority is that authority is always delegated. We've been preaching about this as we've gone through uh, Romans chapter 13. Paul gave a remarkable sermon 
on the idea of authority and submitting to authority. And one of the points that he made uh, really needs to be highlighted tonight, that any authority on earth has really, is really only ever delegated authority. It's authority that God has given us for his purposes. So there's nobody on the face of the planet that is kind of uh, top dog and that they have the final say. Everybody on earth, regardless of how much authority they think they have, is all delegated from God, which means that they're responsible before God to do his plans and purposes with that authority. So it's not like it's woohoo, I get to do what I want. Having authority means, oh, God has given me responsibility to be able to help others, and so I need to reflect who he is and what he values in how I lead other people. So the first thing that's very helpful to understand about authority is that it's always delegated. And if we miss that point, we will always become self-centered in our use of power. But then the second side is just as important. Not only are we answerable above, but we're also, in a sense, answerable below. And that is delegated service, that we're there to build others up, to serve them, to we've been given a responsibility to make others better. And so you've, I'm sure you've all heard the, the idea of servant leadership. I hope that we never get tired of that kind of phrase, that all we ever have authority for is to make other people great. So delegated service. I love both of those words. I remember uh, uh, when I was growing up, my father was starting to get sick with MS. And so we knew that he wasn't going to be able to... Um, to work for much longer. And so my family bought some land across the street from where we lived, and they decided to build a mobile home park. And this was a, a huge godsend because it became our sole source of income um, after my father got sick and eventually passed away. Huge blessing. Well, uh, as we were starting to build a mobile home park, uh, my father was getting to the point where he really couldn't talk very clearly. He couldn't walk at all. And so I am like a, probably a 10-year-old kid. And we're still building a park, which means that there's electricians coming in and plumbing people and people who are making roads. And, and so <laughs> what my mom would say to me is she says, Greg, there's somebody who's going to be... Um, dropping off 10 loads of gravel, and I need, you to, I need you to tell them where to put it. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm a 10-year-old kid. Like, what am I doing? And so I, I go over there, and I, I have delegated authority. So I'm this little 10-year-old kid. Guy pulls up in a big dump truck looking very redneck, and uh, I tell him where to go and what to do. And my authority, uh, he did exactly what I said because I had delegated authority. So what if that's true? What if it's true about all of us that God has actually commissioned us to have influence in other people's lives? And it's not because we're better or greater or smarter or it's none of that. It's simply God has given us a job to do in his name. And to the degree that we reflect him is the degree to which we're being effective in our leadership. So I think the idea of delegated authority is very empowering for us. 
It's not my idea. I'm not grasping for authority. I've been given authority to do something that my father wants done uh, to advance his kingdom. And then the other side, which is the, the service side, is also really important in that uh, the primary way that I have authority in people's lives is if I'm trustworthy. And the way that I'm trustworthy is if it's not about me, it's about helping them. And so I'm, as a leader, we're constantly living in between these two realities of being delegated by God to do his bidding and then making sure that we're serving people for their benefit. Uh, living in that, I find to be a very safe place. It keeps me from ever imagining that having authority is about me. It's either about God and, or about the people that he's wanting me to serve. And I am trustworthy. I'm a good leader to the degree that I'm, I'm leading for their benefit. Um, I can't tell you, I, I, I know that that sounds, you know, kind of, well, yeah. Boy, has that ever helped me. Because I often feel insecure in my leadership. I don't feel very qualified. I still feel like the 10-year-old kid who's telling <laughs> rednecks, <laughs> well, these truck drivers what to do. Uh, I still feel like that. And I don't really enjoy uh, power. It just means responsibility. But when I know that my father wants some people loved, I'd like to get in on that. I'd like to help other people. And so if he would give me an opportunity to serve, it becomes a privilege. And the less that it's about me and the more that it's about him and them, the freer that I feel in being a leader. So what is this thing that God commissions us to do as leaders? Whether we're parents, whether we're uh, in the marketplace, whether we just have friends and we're trying to we're trying to help them. What is the thing that God commands or compels us, commissions us to do? God commissions us to help people love God and others. Um, if you have authority uh, in the workplace, you are helping somebody help someone else. You might think that you're in sales. You might think that you're making a widget. But that widget is supposed to be a product that is going to benefit somebody's life. And you're going to help somebody make that for the benefit of another person. And the more that that business becomes about love and service, the healthier that business is. The same is true in, uh, in parenting. The goal of a parent is not to get the kid to obey them, although that might be part of uh, what the job description is, but really the main thing that's going on is we're helping children love God and love others. That's the, that's the mission that God has given us. In, uh, we know we've talked a lot about this in our church, Matthew 22, 37 to 40, that it's the sum of the law. But it's also described in Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 to 7, where uh, God gives a commissioning to the people of Israel he declares himself to be one God, and then he commands them to love him with all of their heart and soul and strength and to do all that he says to do. And then he goes on to say the very next thing that he says is impress these commands on your children. So very quickly, God links us being in relationship with him 
to us, that, that delegated authority, us being in relationship to him is quickly translated into us being in a relationship with another generation that also needs to love God and be in right relationship with him and others. It's how we think about our lives. And if you can think about your life this way, there's no dull moment of a day. There's no meaningless time. I'm living in response to my father, helping bring his kingdom to earth, by relationally connecting with the people around, around me. Helping my kids, helping my friends have healthy relationships. I was just listening, I, I, in the car I listened to uh, News 1130, and there's always a uh, kind of a, a, a business economic spot, you know. And what were they saying again? It's just, I had heard these statistics a number of years ago, and it's still true that the best way that you can be assured of having a job is if you have the qualities of being a manager. That what they've discovered in the marketplace is there's lots of technicians. There's lots of people who can do stuff. But as is typically true, there's not a lot of people who can lead other people toward positive purposes. And so as we help our kids love God and love others, it even will help them economically. That it's the, it's the primary job of a parent, the primary job of discipleship is to help people have healthy relationships. And if we do that, they're even going to be blessed in the marketplace. goes on. We don't focus on our skills or their behavior, but on a relationship that helps them learn to freely receive and give love and faith. Okay. That's a really big sentence that took me a super long time to craft. So I want to dwell on it just because it took me a long time to get to put together. But, but read that in your notes. Every one of those words is super important. Uh, as a leader, we don't focus on our skills. Now, I have been teaching parenting courses for uh, decades I've been, I've been teaching leadership courses. Uh, I have read dozens and dozens of books on leadership. And I would like to tell you that uh, if you want to be a leader, uh, if you want to be a parent, if you want to make disciples, if you want to lead in the marketplace, whatever it is, if you want to be a leader, skills is always the least of your problems. Yet skills is always what's going to be emphasized in whatever training you have and in whatever uh, development you're going to receive. It's always skills-based. Why? Because nobody wants to talk about character. They just want to talk about skills because it's easy and measurable. And it makes the teacher feel good that they've given something practical. But when we look biblically, uh, when leaders are described, I'm getting ahead of myself, but there's only one skill that a leader is described as needing, and that's the gift of teaching, meaning that you simply have to explain yourself to others why you do what you do and how you can help them. But everything is about character. Here's the problem with that, and here's why I don't think parenting books that emphasize that sell as well. Because what skills do is they kind of miss the heart and they have me just have some technique that is going to help me get my kids to do what I want them to do without having me to look too deeply inside. And I have watched lots and lots of families over the years 
And the families that I think are functioning well compared to those that aren't functioning so well has very little to do with the skill set of the parents, but has a lot to do with the character of the parents. And if there is a parent, if the parents truly love God, want to be conformed to the image of Christ, it is really hard to be a bad parent. The skills will come along. You, you'll, you'll, you'll learn them, especially, I mean, especially when you have, you know, babies. You just want lots of skills because it's just all so new and they're so fragile. You're going to emphasize skills in your mind. But if you have a, have a heart, as we get to in a moment, that is not anxious, uh, most things are actually fairly obvious to do. But we don't focus on our skills. That is a super big deal. Okay, I just got to say more. Because uh, I bet that your discomfort in wanting to make disciples, uh, a large part of it is probably that you don't feel skilled enough. I feel like that all the time. I, I lead a D group, barely lead it. I mean, the guys are just so great. But, uh, but I do, I, I lead the D group. And uh, I never feel qualified on my skills. I never go, we meet at 7.30 in the morning. I never wake up at seven going, yeah, who's got this? You know, <laughs> I never think like that. I think, oh God, help me. But what I can do is I can be humble. I can be gracious and kind. I cannot be angry. I can do that. And that as I simply try to be a godly person, people get blessed. Please don't underestimate the power of a godly character. And don't offset it with skills. Are skills bad? Of course they're not. And we pick up skills over time. But they're never a replacement for character. So we go on with the sentence. We don't focus on our skills or, and again, this is equally shocking, we don't focus on their behavior. You look at uh, most uh, parents, what do they want? Good kids. I still, I still uh, remember going to a house. You know, I'm, I'm trying to, it's not, they're not from our church, but I'm still going to try to disguise it. But I, 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 I remember going to this house and... Uh, walk in the door, and all the kids are lined up as I walk in the door. And they all, each one, walks forward and shakes my hand. Hello, Mr. Mitchell. That was already freaky. And they, they're, they're, they're going through, each one, right? They, they go through, and the parents are standing there going, hey, hey, it's pretty good, right? But your kids don't do that. I go, no, they do not. <laughs> Anyways, I had lots going through my mind in that moment. But you could just see the pride of these parents. Well, uh, I got to watch this family over time. And uh, the kids really struggled in their faith. You see, you apply enough pressure, you can make uh, kids do pretty much anything doesn't mean their hearts are changed. It doesn't mean they love Jesus or love anybody else. They just don't want to get in trouble. Uh, behavior modification is not parenting. Now, when kids are young, do we focus on their behaviors? Of course we do. But why are we doing that? 
is because we're trying to get to their hearts. We're trying to help them trust leaders and otherwise known as parents and to trust somebody to tell you what to do and to not rebel against that, to learn how to have trust in your heart. And those, but, but even when we're talking about behavior, it's not about behavior. It's about, as, as the uh, uh, parenting book that I really like, it's about shepherding their hearts. This is one of the most difficult things for parents to do, is to shift the focus of their discipleship of their kids off of behavior and onto the relationship. It is far and away the biggest trap of making disciples. I've been part of a disciple-making movements ever since I was 11 years old. It's how I came into being a Christian. It was a discipleship movement that that uh, I was birthed into, spiritually speaking. And uh, what was the biggest danger in that movement? It was all about behavior. It was all about behaving in a certain way, following the rules right, of course all by grace, but it was all about following the rules right, and, um, uh, and it hurt a lot of people, and people missed the point. It's easy to make our leadership about us having skills to modify their behavior. And, and most leadership books, whether they're parenting or, or, or business books, are all about that. This is the skill to manipulate their behavior. Of course, they don't use the word manipulation because that wouldn't sell well. But that's really what's going on. And so what I'd like to present to you is a, is a model of leadership that is not about that. But... What is it? It's not on skills of behavior, but on a relationship that helps them learn to freely receive and give love in faith. The primary um, um, space that leadership occurs in is in a simple relationship. It's an intentional relationship. And the building of that relationship is what leadership looks like. It's me taking responsibility for this being a good, a good relationship. As a parent to a child, as a mentor to somebody who's, um, who's a learner, I'm, what I'm mostly doing is working on the relationship. <clears throat> so if I'm, whether I'm meeting with somebody who doesn't yet know Jesus personally, or somebody who's a seasoned Christian, it's always the same. If I'm going to be a person of influence in that relationship, what I'm going to do is build a trust relationship with them. I'm going to be delegated by God to serve them relationally. And to the degree that we have a healthy relationship, I will have that magic word that's always talked about in leadership, although it's being debated more recently, influence. I am influential to the degree that someone trusts me to have a voice in their life. So I'm working on the relationship, not just on their behavior. And what I might even do, get this parents, I might even ignore some poor behavior for the sake of the relationship. Because my priority is not to get them to be externally good, it's for them to love God and to love others and to have a trust relationship with me. And so sometimes it means sacrificing, uh, having them look good in front of others. 
Um, what this relationship also means, and, I, and again, you think it's so obvious, but as soon as you have authority, weird stuff goes on in your brain. Because um, you just, you, you, you get all serious and, oh dear God, I'm a leader. And oh dear God, I have a baby. And, I've, uh, and you just feel the pressure and the anxiety. And so I think the first thing that you do in a relationship, you know, write this down because it's profound. Uh, you enjoy them. <laughs> like, that's just what, like, you know, enjoy your kids. If you're reaching out to somebody who doesn't know Jesus, enjoy them. They're made in the image of God. You get to be their friend. If you're um, discipling somebody who's, uh, who has a habitual sin, um, who's uncooperative, Maybe just enjoy them for a bit. Maybe their resistance of you is you're not yet trustworthy in their eyes. That you've been working on fixing them, fixing their behavior, instead of having a love relationship with them. One of the things that I've needed to do with my own kids when there's, there's too many serious talks is we just have to go and have fun together. We have to go for a ride or go for a hike or go to the beach or play some cars or whatever it is just so that those moments have context of just enjoying one another. So what leaders are doing is they're building healthy relationships. That's their primary job of a leader. And what that relationship is going to empower somebody to do is what we talk about ad nauseum in our church, is that we're going to help them learn how to freely receive and freely give love in faith. That's Matthew 10.8, Galatians 5.6b. Uh, we're, we're constantly doing that. So we want to teach them to freely receive. So we want, instead of them being rebellious, we want our kids to receive direction, affection, um, uh, support, sympathy. We want them to freely receive. And not just, I can do it, I don't need anybody. No, we want them to freely enjoy receiving. Uh, some kids have thoroughly nailed that. <laughs> but so we also want them to freely give. And uh, we want them to give generously and to, and to love blessing others. I can tell you, but I, I just don't want you to think this is about bragging, but I can just tell you stories about my kids, how they've sacrificed for loving others, even as very young kids. And there's nothing that warms your heart more. You can't manage that or make that happen. It comes out of their hearts. They're freely giving. And so uh, healthy children, healthy followers are free to receive, to be grateful, and free to be generous, love others. And all of that is done in faith because they have a living relationship with God. And the, at, the, at the heart of everything is they have freely received the love of God and they've received his grace that has enabled them to love others. And it's all built on that relationship. So that's what's going on. That's what leadership is. And the more that we can make leadership about relationship, the more life-giving it's going to be for all concerned. Yeah. Uh, let's look at our kind of a few sub-points under this. The first is that the primary way that people learn is by imitation. Um, one of the things that was very trendy uh, when I was a young parent 
I don't think they talk about it quite so much. At least I haven't read it so much. But what they would talk about is this thing called teachable moments. And so what you would do is you would take a regular moment or you would orchestrate a moment and then you would give a life lesson or a spiritual lesson. And see, you know, when you don't listen to mom and dad, this is what's going to happen to you. And then you have this teachable moment, right? And so uh, what I imagined when I was a young parent, excuse me, was that my primary influence was in those teachable moments. I doubt that my kids remember any of those. <laughs> like, like it's, you know, how the, how the cat listens to the owner, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like, whatever. I don't know that they heard any of that. But I'll tell you what does change someone else is who we are outside of the teachable moment when it's not orchestrated, when something really bad has happened, they're watching how I respond. When we're blessed, they're watching how I respond. When they do bad, it's how I respond to them. It's about the relationship, and they imitate that. The learning happens. Uh, I I love this. Um, My mentor used to say that kids learn out of the corner of their eyes. Isn't that a great saying? They don't learn in the teachable moment. They learn, oh, that's how you relate to strangers. Oh, that's what you do when you get a paycheck. You first tithe or you don't tithe. Oh, they're learning out of how you live your life. And they end up imitating that. And so this is the beautiful thing about parenting, is that uh, whoever you're discipling comes a grand image of who you are. And then, of course, we get mad at them, try to change their behavior, but they're just reflecting us in a more childish way. But they are reflecting us, and I hate that part. And so how do you improve your kids? You improve you. And as you uh, are imaging Christ, so do they. Without even needing a teachable moment, although those are handy now and then. But the main thing that's going on is imitation. So... The first place that kids grow up to become mature adults, the first relationship that becomes the primary relationship for all the hundreds of relationships that are going to follow in their life is their relationship with their parents and then their siblings. And so the parent-child relationship, the the uh, mentor-follower relationship, is the training ground for all other relationships. When I look at the people who have discipled me, when I think of my brother, when I think of of other uh, men in my life who have poured into my life, uh, how they related to me became the model for how I related to others. What my parents valued. uh, I grew up in a home is, is... Many of you know I grew up in a home where we had lots of uh, what we call foster kids. These were just my my brothers and sisters. Uh, I I grew up in a home that valued that, and so I do too. I just learned by imitation. My parents never sat me down and says, you know, when you're married, what you need to do is you need to have kids that are not biological live with you. That's the best way to live, and it's going to... I, they, they never gave me that, that teachable moment, that life lesson. But out of the corner of my eye, I saw how they lived, 
and I became an imitator of them. Now, can you see how uh, this is changing what leadership means? It, this is why it's all based on character, because it's more about who we are and how we live than how we lead others. Some of you are discounting yourself as disciple makers because you think you need a skill set. No, you don't. You just need to want Jesus and then journey with people uh, toward that. Like, all you need is a bit of humility, a life direction, and then you figure it out together. That's enough. That's a godly character. A face turned toward Jesus. Now you're a leader. Congratulations. It's not that hard. You just need to let yourself receive that delegated authority to be an influence of humility and needing Jesus. And now you're making disciples. You might pick up a few skills along the way. That'll be great. But the main thing that's going on is you're building a relationship with that person. And that relationship is going to change them in a way that nothing else will. Next point. Our priority then is to be a better person for them to react off of. This is going back again to the idea that what leadership and parenting is primarily about is changing other people's behaviors. God knows I've tried to change my children's behaviors. It just doesn't go well. And even if they change, it was, it's just out of pressure. Now, if they're hurting a sibling or they're going to run across a road, of course you're going to, I mean, you're going to make them stop doing something. Not, I'm not, it's not anti-behavior. It's changing a heart that has even better behaviors than behavior management could ever give. It always has to end up in behavior. It's just how you get there. And so the, the, the way that they have better behavior is if I become a better person to react off of. What have we been talking about for these past number of weeks? It's that we live in reaction to the people around us. We're relational beings, whether we like to admit it or not. So who you are is always a product of your environment. It's also nature, I understand that, but it's always a product of your environment. Where uh, that the verse, you know, bad company corrupts good character, that uh, our company, who we're around, always affects who we are. Mm. So then, if we know that this is true, how do we change our children? And how do we change other people to be more like Jesus? Well, quite simply, we become, a, we become a, a better person for them to react off of. If we're not anxious, if we're calm and peaceful, if we're kind and generous, then they react off of that. And they learn that uh, we're safe and they don't have to be self-protected or proud or defensive. And simply how we receive who they are changes them. One of the things that I've noticed, uh, uh, you know, as I, you're going to think this is a technique. This is not a technique. One of the things that I've noticed is that when I smile at people, it reduces their anxiety. Um, I had, I remember when I was at university, 
um, you know, people would say, you know, are you mad at me? And I go, nope. <laughs> so I've said, this is my face. <laughs> I'm sorry that my face looks mad. And what I've realized over the years is that people are evaluating how I feel about them just by the look on my face. And so I thought, oh, that's interesting. So what if when I meet somebody, I let myself feel affection in my heart towards them? And I just want to smile because I really like seeing them. And as soon as I smile because I have affection towards them, it's not a technique. I'm just letting myself receive how God views them and letting myself be in that, then they smile. Their defenses go down. And now we can talk about deep and profound things without lots of walls and self-protection going on. And so they get helped simply by me managing my own anxiety and, and being, and being a, a, a conduit for God's grace to flow through me to them. Now, have you ever heard this before? Because I haven't. I thought leadership was always about changing others, not changing me. And when I discovered that others change as I change and they're now reacting off of a better person, that that's actually how people change. I just, I can give you so many examples that the, the best one that comes to my mind is my wife. What she does, I have, um, uh, my wife and, uh, knows everything wrong about me. <laughs> and there's a lot to know. Uh, she knows everything wrong about me. And, uh, and what she, so she knows all my darkest secrets, all my bad habits, all my fears and insecurities. I, I don't know even if I could hide anything from her. I don't want to. And I don't think I even could if I wanted to, because she just knows me too well. And she's too prophetic, which really bugs me sometimes. Um, I'm being funny. So, uh, so I feel naked. And then she smiles at me, and I go, it's okay to be known. I'm changed because she accepts me in my fallenness. She didn't change me because she taught me a lesson, sat me down, pulled out the Bible, says this is what it says in Hepatitis 3.9 of Howard. She didn't do any of that. All she did was accept me in my ugliness and my life changed. What if that is really how change occurs? Is by being somebody that they can test transparency with that they can test being brave with. I remember when, we, uh, when our, our non-biological kids came to live with us, they lived with a single mom, and, um, and their, their, their mom was just very fearful about all kinds of things, and fearful even about you know, physical things. And so, uh, so I remember, you know, because it's just my thing, I, I wish I had a wider breadth of stuff, but I take them out biking. And, uh, and I remember the fear on their face. And then they saw something, a, a stunt that looked like it could be fun to go over. 
And they look at me like, are you going to be afraid like my mom is? And I have a smile on my face, and I go, give it a try. Their face lights up, and they have a go. They're reacting off of me. I'm not afraid. Now, there's other times where I have to say not so much. <laughs> but uh, whatever they're doing, they're reacting off of me. I'm changing them by who I am. Are you, is this starting to make sense to you? It's much simpler. It requires a heart change, but that's what Jesus comes to do for us. But it's not about behavior management. It's not about skills. Wow, I went on a long time. But it, it's, it's so hard to grab hold of this and to understand that this is what leadership is about whether it's discipleship or parenting. So what then is the challenge? Well, it's whether motivated by faith or anxiety. And so what we've been talking about so much over the last number of weeks is that anxiety is the number one problem in relationships because it taints our ability to be godly. When we're afraid, when we're not walking in faith, then what comes out of us is not great things. Because we're compensating, we're managing, we're over or under functioning, which is what all the problems of parenting and discipleship are about. So if we, if we then look at this definition that we're working with, <clears throat> that um, we are building a relationship where we're uh, being the kind of people that allow them to freely give and receive love and faith, if that's where we're headed, and we head there simply by building a relationship where we receive their gifts, we give them free gifts, and we just build a healthy relationship, and we do it because we trust in Jesus, not in ourselves or even them. So that's the goal. What's the extremes? We've always had these two extremes um, each week. The first fear or anxiety is when we fear insecurity. Not ours, but theirs. One of the fears that parents have is they're afraid that their children won't feel loved enough. If they're anything like me, I don't feel like I'm the, I'm the you know, I'm not a, a warm, gushy person or I'm not, you know, I'm afraid that my kids are just going to grow up with their performance, perfectionistic mentality because that's who I am. And so I'm afraid that they're going to be insecure and not know how to, how to freely receive um, and so I can be afraid of that. Now, when I'm afraid that they'll be insecure, if you can look in your notes, what, will what I'm valuing, and these are good things to value, that's why there's a little check mark beside it. I value connection. I value mercy and protection and nurture. So if you're on this side as a parent because you're afraid that your kids won't feel loved, there's going to be certain things that you value. You're going to be always looking out for them in kind of uh, creating a padded world for them. A world that's soft, that doesn't have hard edges, where they feel safe and cared for. Really beautiful things. But here's where the struggle is, if we're on that side, is that we become rescuers. We're, uh, we're overcompensating. And it's all about our personal performance. So, if there's a problem with my kids, I just need to perform better. I need to be kinder, more loving, more capable, better skills, better at playing games, give them more outstanding experiences, uh, uh, unconditionally love them even more. 
but it's all on this side. The other side is if we fear insignificance. And what we're particularly afraid of is that our children will grow up being irrelevant, useless, lazy. They're not going to get good jobs. They won't contribute to society. They're going to be insignificant. Now, what we're valuing on this side is uh, responsibility. The, um, uh, we're going to be, be valuing uh, success, these kinds of things. So you can, see in certain, you can see this even in certain cultures, can't you? Where some cultures are more about just providing love and acceptance, other cultures are providing responsibility and calling people to grow up and to, to make something of themselves and to achieve. What these things can be is fear-based. And on this side, what fear looks like is we become, instead of a rescuer, we become a persecutor. When they fall down and hurt themselves, we say, uh, don't bleed on the carpet. We say, grow up and act like a man. Take responsibility. We call them and we, be, we end up becoming cold. And what we put on this side, when we fear that they'll be insignificant, instead of focusing on our performance, we focus on their performance. Be better. Try harder. You got a B? Well, why didn't you get an A? Your friends get an A. And you know what happens to people who get Ds? Do you know where they end up living? You know, you threaten them, shame them. But it's based out of a fear of insignificance. Now, if you're anything like me, this gets overwhelming. How am I ever going to be this good? How are you going to keep all this in mind? What's so beautiful about being a Christian is that in Christ, we're secure. In Christ, we're filled with grace. The kind of leader that's able to avoid those extremes is the one who lives in faith, being defined by their Heavenly Father. I'm not good enough to manage this. I'm not that smart. But as I find peace in Christ and want to be more like Him, these fears begin to fade away and I begin living more in the middle. But here's what's tricky. Uh, we usually feel loving. I've talked to parents who are cruel. They're absolutely cruel. And um, they, uh, they set up a scenario for the kid to be vulnerable. The kid gets vulnerable, and then they, uh, they'll slap the kid and say, don't you ever be vulnerable. Like, it's just... Uh, but you know what that person will say? I was teaching him a lesson. I want him to grow up and be a man. And you don't trust anybody in this world. And they actually think they're being loving. Parents generally love their kids a lot. It's hard not to. And so you feel like you're being loving. But um, our anxiety gets manifested in their behavior. 
And so if we start to see kids that are freaking out about their performance, or if they're being irresponsible and entitled, the, the, the trick is not to do something about them. It's, oh, Father, this is something that you're still working on in my life. They're still reacting off of me. And I couldn't see me. I needed a mirror, otherwise known as my children or those that I'm discipling. One of the scariest things that I have as a pastor is in lots of ways our church is a reflection of me. In the, in the, in the, the biases that I don't see as healthy, it's like, oh, sick. That's in my heart. And so I could try to have some skills and, and get us all to behave differently. Or I could go to Jesus and say, Jesus, there's still wickedness in my heart. I still don't trust you. I'm still not defined by you. The words that come out of my mouth, they're still tainted. I could try to control the words, or I could cry out for mercy and ask for a new heart. Father, would you give me a new heart so that I don't have to pick and choose the words, but that I would have a better heart that I would speak out of? And so the way out of this unhealthy leadership is really about being defined by Jesus. So then looking at leadership, we're in the second part. Um, the Bible then defines good leaders in terms of character. We've already said this. Not in terms of charisma, intellect, or talent. And if you're anything like me, I discount myself because I don't feel like I have enough charisma. I don't feel like I'm smart enough. And I don't feel talented enough. I never have. And I doubt that I ever will. Thank God that what he values is character. And character is being with my father and being, spending time with him because I imitate who I'm around. And so the reason why I read my Bible and pray and walk with my father is because I want to be like him. And the more I'm around him, the more I am. And so as I take on his image, I then become a safer leader and not so reactionary because he's working on these things in my heart. Sadly, though, we can use skills to mask our anxiety. We compensate. Uh, instead, we avoid anxious extremes and biases by staying in the faith zone. I preached on this a few weeks ago, and I actually like it, that uh, uh, whenever I'm not trusting God is when I'm getting anxious, and I either overfunction, or I try to blame and make other people do stuff. But when I stay in faith, I stay in this place of healthy relationship. So what healthy leaders do then is they triangle with God. So as it's us, the mentor, and we'll just say them because it's easy to, say, to put on here, but you know, as those that we mentor and us, as we stay, remember how we talked about triangles, the only healthy triangle is a triangle with God. And as we include God into our relationship with our children or those we're discipling, our anxiety goes down because it's all about Him and we just become a facilitator of their relationship with God. The result is followers that are secure and significant, free and obedient, cooperative and bold. So let's end by talking about one last thing and then we'll open it up for Q&A. Courageous conversations. If you've been in, a, um, in the D group training, we've talked a lot about this because it's such a big deal. The hardest thing, I think, for leadership 
is when it's time to have a hard conversation with somebody. Uh, they're sinning. There's, uh, they have a blind spot. Um, there's, they're hurting other people. There's some, there's some kind of courageous conversation that needs to happen. First Thessalonians describes what discipleship and parenting is like. And I, I, I've always loved this verse. Warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. I love how all of those things are going on. Patience, help, encouragement, but also warning. And so I would like to just outline for you four qualities of a non-anxious, courageous conversation that as we're trusting in God, it'll help us then relate to others in a healthy way, even when it's time to correct, whether it's a child or an adult who we're trying to help. I'd like to just say four things. I'll try to say them quickly, but I think that they'll be very helpful for you. And these, these things will all require faith. Number one, don't need them to change for your well-being. Okay, that's, that's called impossible. <laughs> but don't need them to change for your well-being. When your kids are screaming in the mall, um, don't make them change because you're embarrassed. When uh, you're discipling somebody and they still uh, go to the bar uh, and, you know, get drunk on the weekends, don't ask them to change because you're embarrassed by their behavior. The hardest thing to do as a leader is to not put your anxiety onto another person and have them be better so that you can look better. Um, and the, and another way of saying this, and it's not in your notes, but I think it's such a powerful thing to say, that in parenting or discipleship, we never make relationship a reward. Meaning that we don't say, be better so that I'll love you. We always start with love, and then we work through the difficulties together. Relationship is not a reward, it's a gift. And so we start with loving them, even when they're not doing well. Number two, observe behavior versus assume motives. Whenever we um, have a courageous conversation with somebody, we need to bring up an issue. And the way that we bring it up is we observe a behavior. We, we do not assume motives. We begin by saying, I've noticed. So you can't confront somebody on something you haven't seen, nor can you judge them on what you think their motive was when they did it. In anxiety... So these are all about anxiety versus faith. But in anxiety, I always want to pad my arguments. So I've noticed, and I think that you are being self-centered, or I think pride's in your heart, and I'm building up a case for their repentance. It's really I'm just insecure, and I, I didn't know how to simply make an observation and let the Spirit of God bring, bring conviction. So I pad it out trying to make them feel bad, and it's just not helpful. So whenever we, uh, we parent our children, we always make observations of their behavior and then work that through together. Number three, journey together versus give advice from the other side. 
So uh, the way that we talk about how people change is through truth, repentance, and faith. We've, uh, that's a big deal in our church. And it's always a going through death and resurrection. It's the biblical way to change, based on Philippians chapter 2. The position of a discipler, this is where the disciple is. The position of a discipler is never over here, shouting directions for how they should behave to get over to where they are. The position of a discipler is always together walking down to find Jesus together. <clears throat> the, uh, the most powerful thing that you can do is be with people in their struggles and find Jesus together. The reason why counselors tell us so much about why advice is wrong and not helpful is, first of all, people won't do it. But also, it positions you as being above and better than instead of a common sojourner to find Jesus together. Advice is tips and tricks. And what we really need is a heart change coming to the cross. And so we make, a, we make a, uh, uh, an observation, I've noticed. And then we, we ask, you'll see in your notes, do you have any thoughts about that? They go, it's true, I do do that. And then you say, yeah, me too. I've, um, I've met with prostitutes and drug dealers and people who have been in jail for very, very horrible crimes. I've met with people who are incredibly wealthy. Uh, I've met with a very wide range of people. And when they tell me their struggles, it sounds just like me. Because I'm motivated by anxiety. I'm motivated by pride. I haven't done those things that they've done, but my heart has been the same. And so uh, I become qualified to be a disciple maker to the degree that I know that I need Jesus. And I might not be an expert on how to overcome drug addiction, but I understand something about feeling out of control. And so let's figure out how to find Jesus together. And then you ask, what helps you? And then you can share, well, this is what helps me. This is, that's the difference. Advice says this is what you should do. Help says this is my testimony. This is how I found Jesus in a similar, not the same, but a similar kind of place. And then they're able to take from that what's helpful for them. You don't feed them, you just give them a plate and they can pick and choose what would be helpful for them. You can ask, how can I help? And then they can decide what's helpful or not. It empowers them by asking that question. And then finally, the journey is always through truth, repentance, and faith. But here's what discipleship and parenting, this is what's always going on, is, uh, is in every stage of child development, in every stage of discipleship, what you're simply doing is taking the same issues of truth, repentance, and faith and applying them to different circumstances and life experiences. To our children's sexuality to their friendship, to uh, career, to um, how to have a healthy friendship. You're just taking how to find Jesus and helping them find him in new places. That's all that discipleship ever is. 
Now, for the person who's going through it, the moment always feels super unique and really challenging and overwhelming. But the principles always stay the same. Jesus is always the hero of the story. So we need to know what's true, choose love, and choose trust. But, but circumstances blind us to trust. What we've been discovering in our, our D group, which um, I think is always true, is at the end of the day, the thing that you're helping people most with is trusting Jesus in new moments. Can I trust him with my heart? Can I trust him instead of having to control the moment or opt out of the moment, withdrawal or, or control? Can I trust him in this moment? And as we empower people to trust him in these different moments, we're making disciples and we're raising godly children. So in conclusion, the world is orphaned. John 14, 18 describes the world as orphaned. They might have parents, but there's not a lot of parents who do what we're talking about today, leading people to Jesus to freely receive and give his love. So the world is orphaned, and we are ministers of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18 tells us that. And what we're doing is we're helping people be in right relationship with God by being a relationship that they can practice on. That when they do something wrong, they'll experience God's forgiveness because we extend forgiveness. When they do well, we are a champion because God celebrates. And we begin to mediate what God would be like in this moment, however dimly. We mediate it. And then they begin to grow in their trust in God because we're a reflection of who he is. So it is our privilege to invest our lives in the next generation. Can I just say this very, very clearly? If you're not investing in the next generation, I don't know what you're doing. Like, what's the point of you having a job, making a bunch of money, um, vacationing, I love vacationing, but what's the purpose of doing all that stuff if you're not investing in the next generation? I don't know that there's any other value in life aside from doing that. And when we do that, then we should have a good job because we need resources. We should go on vacation because we'll probably be a little tired doing it. We should do all of those things. But our primary life purpose is to go and make disciples of our children and of those around us. Having a, a relationship with them that's built on trusting in God and helping them trust in the way that we, we're trying to figure out. And then our growth continues as we disciple others. You know, some people think that um, the, the discipler and the disciple is always kind of a one-way street, that all the help is going in this direction. It's not true at all. I am changed by the people that I serve. Their humility, their courage, their wisdom, their correction of me, dramatically changes who I am. If you're feeling stuck in your faith, if you're feeling uninspired, that even it's hard to read your Bible because it seems boring and irrelevant, invest yourself in someone else and they will become a blessing to you in a way that words can't describe. Everybody gets blessed as we engage in this ministry. So, a lot of content. But I'd like to open it up for questions. I have, um, I have some of my boys are here, men are here, uh, Debbie's here. 
So if you want to ask a question of, uh, of my kids, if you want to ask a question of my wife or me, um, I just encourage you to do that. And, uh, you know, if there's any, any things that didn't make sense or anything that you think needs to be emphasized or something that you don't agree with, I'd be just happy to work these things out together for the, for the time that we have left. Thanks, Pastor Greg. Oh, man, that was so helpful. And I feel especially too helpful after yesterday's sermon that Jonathan was sharing about our debt to love not yes. being something we can complete. It yes. lines up with that in a really helpful way. Yeah. Um, one of the questions someone had, I like this because I feel like it, it works in both camps, whether, um, well, I'll just read the question and then I, I can fill it in if we need. Um, how you're saying that parents don't like parenting advice being pushed on them. And we can sort of see that in ministry. Um, and so how do we respond if we see a leader pushing their anxiety onto others, either ourselves or the people around us? What does it look like to have that courageous conversation? And that's sort of the discipleship side, but I would also say I sometimes see that like in our parenting dynamic where I'll be parenting out of anxiety or Paul will be parenting out of anxiety. And so whether it's, yeah, how do you sort of bring mm -hmm. that up? <laughs> I mean, yeah. other than the... I noticed X, Y, Z, but um, I don't know, or maybe that is just as simple as that's being the answer. Yeah. I think what we're, you know, if we can read through the lines, it really is difficult to parent alongside Paul, and I understand that. Um, <laughs> and that's a whole other topic that we don't have time for today, but uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, well, it's a courageous conversation, isn't it? And what is a courageous conversation with is I've noticed. I've noticed that um, you, uh, you know, are, uh, when you get frustrated, it looks like you get frustrated, you raise your voice, or uh, I've noticed that uh, when too much is going on, you kind of mentally check out, or whatever the thing is, we just make an observation. And when we make an observation for their benefit, then we're just not anxious. And then we're, when we're not anxious, we become a safe place for them to explore their challenges. And this is the beauty of discipleship, is I go, okay, this can't be about me right now. Uh, this is about them. I make the observation, but I hold it lightly. I'm differentiated. And because they don't feel pressure from me to have to have the right answer, then they don't get defensive. They're able to stay uh, humble and transparent. And then we can have a healthy conversation. And I can say, you know, uh, I don't do that, but I do this. And how do we work? But all of that can happen when we make an observation and then uh, walk in the peace of the Lord instead of needing something, needing them to change so that we can find peace. That's good. Um, you know, when you're saying that, it, it brings to mind another question. Um, we often talk about being non-anxious, but I find I'm not always sure I, like, I might still feel anxiety even if I'm going into a moment in faith. And I feel like I would, I would love to hear good. your thoughts on the difference good. between how we feel and the choice to say, I am not being anxious and I'm holding this loosely and giving this to God. That's very good. That's very good. Um, uh, so, 
a couple things. First of all, it's helpful to know the difference between stress and anxiety, where stress is a, is a circumstance and anxiety is a feeling. So uh, I have to live in lots of stressful circumstances. You know, it's called living. And so I, I have lots of stressful circumstances. And then what I can do is in that stress, I can make some choices. And the choices are between what I feel and what's true. And so, Tara, I think that you're saying it really well, that I can, uh, I can still feel anxious, but listen to me now. I don't put my faith in my anxious feeling. I'm not trusting in my anxious feeling. I'm trusting in Jesus in the moment. So, Jesus, I feel anxious. This is a stressful moment. I feel anxious. But I don't have faith in my anxiety. I have faith that you're greater than my anxiety and that you can actually meet me in this place even before my feelings change. That is a remarkable thought. I remember uh, my mentor telling me about uh, one of the questions that he asks uh, those that he counsels. And he says a thing that's very, I find it shocking. He'll, he'll say to people, what would you like to feel today? People go, what do you mean, what would I like to feel? I, how do I control my feelings? They just happen. I don't choose my feelings. He goes, really? Let's talk about that. And it's interesting that a psychologist will say that feelings are actually chosen. Now, the feeling itself isn't chosen, but the belief behind the feeling is chosen. And as we change our belief, we then change our convictions. But uh, to know that I cannot have faith in my anxiety, but I can have faith in what God is doing in the moment, is a very helpful thing to do. Because otherwise, I feel stuck with the feeling that I can't change. And so I'll be in a stressful situation. I feel my anxiety go up. And I want to say to them, could you just give me like uh, one minute to four hours? <laughs> until I can work through my anxiety and come back as a better person. Or I can say, I am picking up on their anxiety. But what I can do is I can bring that anxiety to my father, who is not anxious about my anxiety. You understand that? He's not anxious about my anxiety. And I can say, Father, what are you doing in this moment, despite all of our feelings? And as I begin to churn my eyes and start believing more in what he's saying and doing than what I'm feeling, I then become helpful in connecting this person to the one that I'm connecting to. That's good. Thank you. Um, Great question. I often find that um, sometimes it's hard to know if there's a courageous conversation or if I'm putting an expectation on someone in my own anxiety. Yeah. Do you have any tips on how we can sort of check our pulse to see which moment this might be? Yeah. Yeah, that's, I would say that's one of my biggest problems, and it's especially to the people that I love. Because I can't tell whether this is about me, like that I'm intimate with. Because I can't tell whether it's about me or them, and it gets all jumbled up. And so uh, I'll just tell you what I do. Um, I just have the courageous conversation knowing full well it could all be about me. So instead of me sorting it out alone, 
I just say, I've noticed. I've noticed you doing this, and then I notice when you do that, I do this. <laughs> I don't know what to do about that. I don't know what part of that is me, what part of that is you, what part of that is us. I don't know where God is in this. I'm just invite, I can invite people in to my imperfect observations and we can work it through together. One of the things that Debbie has really helped me with over the years is that uh, my modus operandi is to have a problem, fix it with Jesus, and then represent myself in the relationship as being all fine. She hates that, and uh, she should, because uh, I'm actually avoiding intimacy. And so instead, what she wants, and I think it's the better way to go, I'm just not as brave as her, but what she wants is for me to have a problem with her that we work through together. And what, that's vulnerable for me because, Tara, as you said, I don't even know what's going on in my own heart. What part of it's godly, what part of it's anxious, I don't even know. And so it's very vulnerable to come to somebody and work something through and need Jesus together instead of me being all fixed and then presenting myself godly to them. But what if we're both trying to get to Jesus in this courageous conversation? It's a, it's a different, it's a more vulnerable way to, to lead, isn't it? Where we're not the heroes, we haven't had it figured out ahead of time, we're working it out, but what we're doing is we're modeling to them a way to be imperfect in a godly way. That's yeah. good, thank you. Uh, yeah. Debbie, I think, is gonna make a comment on that. Yeah, hi everyone. I'm just thinking a lot about um, you as you're out there and you're watching and um, it strikes me as I, I see who's out there and those of you who are going to listen, but this area right here, each one of our children are in this place and, uh, and I think that I often think about where my anxiety lies is I want them to understand the truth and I want them to repent and I want them to come to faith and probably the thing that causes me anxiety is this never seems to go fast enough and this process sometimes makes me feel like a failure and I think there's some of you out there that I, I know and you've shared with me that your children have gone through very hard things and um, and and you've, you've tried to bring them here and you've tried to be you know do all the right things and you still feel like your children aren't following God and I just want to speak to that for a minute because um, I don't want you to feel like a failure. <laughs> I don't want you to feel like you've been a bad parent because one or two or your children have fallen into moral failure or have fallen into, well, moral failure, any kind. Um, I want you to know that you're not a failure and that as you're you know, choosing to have faith, as you're choosing to walk in humility, as you're choosing to allow yourself to be known as a parent. This child can't argue with that. That's right. And you can't, our job is not to save our children. That's a work of the spirit. And, and if you wear that and you think that somehow it's your fault that your child is not following God, then I really feel like we want to lift that off of you. Good. And that at any given moment in time, you can come before the Father and address your areas where you felt insignificant or address the areas where you feel insecure, where you think maybe this is a time where I need to be more generous to my rebellious child 
but it's always this area here, you and I as parents are always discerning. But what we can't do is take the responsibility for saving our child. Good. That's a work of the spirit. And I've certainly had different ones that, you know, it's just like you just so want them to get it and they don't. And I remember um, there was a fellow in our lives one time who came through and he talked to me about one of my children and he said, how are you going to feel if that child decides to not follow God? And I really had to wrestle that through. And then he told me his story and he said, I wouldn't be the man who I am today if it wasn't for the fact that I went through a very rebellious time in my life because the change in my life became so significant because of my rebellion. So, I mean, of course, I don't sit here and wish that upon my children. I don't want to prophesy that over my children. But at the same time, like you and I, we've all faced this process. And I think it's really important as a parent to be able to, um, we're not the savior of the story. And and so my job as a parent is to, you know, to work these things out and, you know, to really trust that God is working this out. And um, so I just wanted to say that because, yeah, it's important for you to know because I've I've seen you all out there and and you're at varying stages of parenting out there, either just beginning families or some of you have grown in adult children. I respect you for being here. Thank you. Um, But that same principle is always obviously how you've been saying that very well. It's all part of the disciple making process, but you can't save the person you're discipling. So, yeah. That's really good, Debbie. Isn't that helpful? Uh, So helpful. I'm glad you mentioned discipleship at the end there too, because I've often found like, oh, why don't I have this or that? And I felt like God often reminded me, because then they would be your conference and not mine. And I'm like, ooh, so true, it's not on us. So good. Um, We just have a a few more questions. I'm going to try to get to them. The next two are more specific for kids. Um, so we talked about these things that I, you know, I think it's easier to make sense of them in our heads with adults, whether that's our more grown-up children or people we're discipling. But when we have young children, um, how do we? I don't even know if you can answer this, but you had a lot of kids. So how do you get your child to talk to you when they're upset instead of going into a rage and? That might still actually apply in discipleship for older children, but for sure in little kids, do you have any insight on, on how to sort of walk that out? Yes, I think that this. I think that the principles stay the same. So whenever a child is in a rage, um, it's the same reason why an adult is in a rage, although that it just looks differently. And what it is is it's their anxiety. So they're feeling out of control by either feeling ashamed feeling that they're not getting their way, they're not able to control the situation. And so in that heightened moment of, uh, uh, that they're in, uh, what we're mostly doing is bringing them back to a place of peace. So it's not a teachable moment. Uh, they can't, uh, when we're anxious, we're not thinking. So adults aren't thinking and little kids aren't thinking, right? They're just mad because they didn't get the toy. So, uh, the first thing that we do is we manage our anxiety. So if we go in there fully anxious, like, I can't believe that you're behaving this way. And now we're increasing their anxiety instead of decreasing it. So as we go into those moments as being a non-anxious presence, that we don't lose sight of Jesus in the tension that they're going through and the anxiety that they're going through, it creates space for them to calm down. So what we're doing is we're dividing it into at least two parts. Part number one is helping them manage their anxiety by being 
non-reactive, non-anxious ourselves, giving them uh, options, uh, smiling at them, or, uh, or speaking quietly. But what we're doing is stage one is we reduce, we reduce their anxiety. Empathetic statements, all those things reduce anxiety. And then stage two is a courageous conversation. But you never have a courageous conversation with an anxious person because they can't think, it'll just be reactive. So the first thing that we're doing is we're working on the relationship by bringing peace into the relationship. And then when things calm down, we can have the courageous conversation. I've noticed that when you don't get your toy, you get mad. And then we are able to make that observation and work through how it's, uh, uh, it's fun to be loving and uh, you make a game out of being generous and then you give them a chance to be generous and you tell them how amazing they are and you give them a positive experience of self-sacrifice. But you've broken it down into two moments. So it's more obvious in the child because they have less um, cultural sophistication. But adults and children do the exact same thing. So we reduce the anxiety through being a non-anxious presence in the relationship, and then we have a courageous conversation to follow. That would be my thoughts, at least. Sounds great. Thank you. Um, last two questions. Uh, we, you've, you've had especially a variety of children, uh, different personalities. <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great word. <laughs> right. The whole pack. That's um, really the We were wondering if you have any sort of ways, because every kid has different needs, security, more authority, but also the same principles you're talking about could apply to lots of kids. So we wondered if you had any advice on parenting different personalities of kids while using the same tools. Yeah. Yeah, this is, and it's, it is true. We have lots of different kinds of kids. And I'm sure those of you who even just have biological kids, isn't it shocking how different they are? Like, it just is like, really? You, you, you all came from us because <laughs> the, their personalities are so different. I've heard so many parents say that. I just love that about kids. They just, they're their own person. And, um, and so that's why this idea of relationship becomes all the more important. That uh, there's no replacement for me having a relationship with Jonathan and with Toby and with Tyler and Jessica and Noah and Naomi, I have a relationship with them. So I'm not a generic parent parenting generic children. Um, if you've ever seen me around your children, I'm only awkward. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so um, so I don't, I'm, I'm a horrible generic parent. But I love my kids. And I have a relationship with them. And I've worked hard at it and they have too. And so, I, as soon as we read books and have generic ideas, it's so easy to fall into my skills and their behaviors instead of me building a relationship with them. But when I know what the goal is, then they get to be individuals, and I get to be an individual too. And we're just working out our relationship together. And what was the, what, what I know when it really struck me was... Uh, our firstborn with Jonathan is that I didn't know how to be a parent and then I realized that I didn't know how to be a parent I just needed to be Jonathan's parent I don't know how to be a generic parent but I can love Jonathan 
And so, uh, you know, he comes with a book. I guess we're reading a book. Things smell a little funky. I guess we're changing a diaper. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I'm just working out my relationship with my child. Isn't that sweet? That it takes the pressure of having to be an ultimate parent raising ultimate children to just having real people that we're walking with. That's so helpful, especially too, even in discipleship, because you can disciple anyone, but that's not the point. It's about the person who actually you have a relationship with. So. Yeah. That's great. Um, this one is, I mean, I think it's parenting and discipleship, but how do we form a triangle with a disciple, I think also a child, when it seems that they're unwilling to fully connect or engage? And even if we're trying to enter into non-anxious, courageous conversations after trying to make sure that, you know, they're in peace and we have a healthy relationship, um, but at some point, people aren't willing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the observation. Like, it... Uh, it's we. It's again. It's making we we use this statement um, with um, D group leaders that we make the covert overt. We say it looks as though um, this is a this is a challenging moment for you to be transparent. Would that be fair to say? They go, yep. And this is there anything that I can help with that? Uh, do you know where that's coming from? And then we just explore it together. So I really like not having tricks. I like just saying the observation and then working it through in a relationship and then asking a question like, where do you think God is right now in this moment? Well, he's very far away. Well, then it's no, it's no wonder that you would feel anxious because you're not feeling protected by him. Where else have you felt unprotected? Where else have you noticed that this comes up? What do you do in those moments? And you just become a curious person about understanding your friend or your child. And you just, you, and then you might share a story of what's helpful for you. And then you ask what's been helpful for them. Like, we all, I think, intuitively know how to have a relationship. But when somebody comes with a real problem that we think is out of our expertise or uh, a closed person, wow, I can't deal with, like we make something that triggers our anxiety. And when we trigger our anxiety, then we want a technique to change their behavior. But if we stay relational, make an observation, talk it through together, it's just shocking what the Spirit of God does in those moments. But whenever I'm overwhelmed, that's anxiety. I'm losing sight of God, which causes me to lose sight of them. They become a project, and the whole thing falls apart. Mm -hmm. But as I decrease my anxiety, God's seen this before. Uh, I make an observation, which invites them to come close, and then we figure it out together. Oh, that's really good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, there are more questions, but it's 9.32, and so I really want to respect everyone's time. So I, I'm going to pray and close us now because um, we did say we'd finish at 9.30. So. Uh, we just, Father, we thank you that we can come here and we, um, again, we're not just, as Pastor Rick said, reading a generic book, but we're getting to know our Father and hearing his heart for us and that we get to understand the way 
that you wired us and the people around us in relationship in such a major way that the answer keeps being drawing closer to you and drawing closer to others. Father, we thank you for what a beautiful invitation that is. Um, and as easy as it puts down in some ways, we thank you that it isn't just a rule book, but that you invite us into something real and lasting and that's really life-changing. I pray that as we leave here tonight, whether it's with children or the people we disciple or relationships in general, that we would leave here um, having something to hold onto that we can see that you were walking us into and a way to turn towards you and a way to turn towards other that feels like something that we can engage with. And so we thank you for this time. I pray that you would give us clarity and wisdom and recall as we go up from here to, to be spurred on by the things that you've said tonight, that we'd be able to hear what you've said to our hearts and hold on to those things, because I'm sure that so many of us are feeling the nudges in our spirits for the relationships in our lives that we know kind of where you're leading us right now. And so thank you for this time, and I pray that you would be with us as we go out from here. In your name, amen. 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 Awesome. God bless you all.